If you've ever wondered what a holy moment looks like, that was it. That song messes me up in a good way. That and Amazing Grace. Wow. So welcome to New Hope. Really glad that you're here. If you're joining us virtually, love, love to have you with us as well. If you would go to Genesis chapter 1, um, you'll be where I'm at. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But if you have a, a Bible, hard copy, electronic, whatever, uh, you can follow along on the screen. The verses will be up there. Um, before we dive into Genesis chapter 1, a piece of information for you related to the operations of the church. Um, you remember this last summer, we announced that we purchased 26 acres north of here, um, actually, you know, adjoining this land. If you're new here, our land was 13 acres. We were able to get 26 acres just north of us that became available for a really good price. But we're going to start up a video, and I'm going to talk to you about a new piece of property that's part of that 26 acres that has also come our way as an opportunity. So you're going to see this video coming from Saginaw. We're looking at Saginaw, obviously backing away from the church, and you recognize the direction we're looking due north. So that's the property that we owned, the 13 and a half acres. And then we purchased the 26 acres that was adjacent to it, so we have that. But a new opportunity has come along for about a two-and-a-half-acre piece of, of land that was separated from it, so I want to explain that to you. Right now, you're looking from the north towards the south, and then we're going to come to the west, and we're going to look towards the east. So you're looking due east right now. You see the church down there in the lower right-hand corner. And this two-and-a-half-acre piece right there is the new property I'm talking about. We've been calling it the Banjo Makers property. And the reason for that is you see the little building on there, the little house. That's where banjos were made. That was the Banjo Makers house. And Bart, who owned that, his family owned this entire section of land from Saginaw all the way up originally in the 1960s. Once he heard that we bought the 26 acres, he wondered if we would like to acquire the two and a half acres that he owns still for the banjo maker's house. And we said, well, yeah, um, but what's the cost on that? And he said, I would sell it to you for $60,000. So we said, that's a good deal. And we will do that. So we paid cash for it and we purchased it and the church now owns it. So praise the Lord for that. God obviously has opened some opportunities here for us. We had the cash to be able to buy it, and we own the entire section now. So we're really thrilled about what the future holds and how we might be using that land. Okay, um, I want to jump into week six with you. And if you're holding the study guide or you, you have the study guide at home or uh, you haven't picked it up yet, they're out in the atrium. It would say that we're on week six, and what you're going to hear this morning goes along with week six. But I would say this is week 6.A, okay? And you're going to see why we did this during the Roman series. We had to do a, a, a fewer where there's part A, part B, part C. And so you're going to want to probably hit the pause button on week 6 as you hear these things this morning. And I think it will make sense to you as we go along. Week 6 begins the creation of man. And as we work through the creation of the elements on earth and the creation of man together, we want to make sure we really understand what's being communicated in the book of Genesis. So here's my kind of, uh, I don't know if I'll call it a warning, recommendation to you. As we work through these things, there's kind of an ebb and flow to this. You're going to notice that last week was very fact-heavy. And there was lots of details. As we looked at the galaxies and we looked at the microcosms of the world. So it was heavy on data. This week's going to be heavy on application. And this is part of the ebb and flow of these things going back and forth. 
Uh, with that in mind, I, w- I would love to jump into this with you, and I want to pray first before we do that. So I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to be our guide and God to teach us as we work through His Word. Would you join me in that? Father, we come to this place where we're preparing our hearts to examine Your Word. And we want to be in, in the place where we're ready to not only hear it, but to respond to it. And we would willingly admit that many times where our human desire is strong in services like this and we want to make changes in our life and respond to the things you call us to, that once we get outside the doors of a building like this or we turn off the TV, our mindset very quickly goes to the agenda at hand and we forget. So God, we're inviting the working of the Holy Spirit not only to imprint on us and to teach us, but to walk alongside us so that tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday won't necessarily look like last week, but because we've experienced your word and learned from your word and believed your word, we would act and conduct ourselves in a manner that befits you. We would pray for these things as we examine your word. So we would ask right now that you illuminate our mind through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. If I asked you this morning, what is the most important thing about you? Where does your mind go? Probably, like most people, on the surface level, very quickly we go to our family life, we go to our social life, we might go to our accomplishments, you might look at the academic credentials, you might look at the achievements in your life. Ponder this on a level that matches God. What's the most important thing about you? As it relates to creation, I would say the most important thing about you is how you answer this question. Did God create you, or are you here by chance? Whether the universe evolved without cause or was intentionally created, I'm going to show you has immense implications for your life this morning. Obviously, the issue has been debated hotly for 200-plus years, and the debate really boils down to your view of God. We lean into a principle very strongly here at New Hope. If you're new at the church, probably you haven't heard it before, but if you've been here for any length of time, you know this phrase, and the phrase is this, what you believe about God determines what you do. And I want you to process that. We're going to leave that up on the screen for you for a moment. What you believe about God determines what you do. For instance, follow this thought. If you would answer a blank this way, I believe God is blank. If you would fill in that blank with, I believe that God is mean. I believe that he's judgmental. I believe that he's disinterested. Or maybe answer it, I believe he's non-existent. That affects how you think of yourself and how you speak into the lives of other people. But if you were to fill in the blank this way, 
I believe that God is kind. I believe that God is loving. I believe that God is knowable. I believe that God is forgiving. That affects how you see yourself and how you would speak into the lives of other people. Let me take this a step further. If as a creator, God has the capacity and the authority to speak this universe into existence, does he not also have the right to declare who you are? What's the most important thing about you? Scripture says if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there's a new beginning in Jesus. Amen? Makes it very, very clear. Because he created you, the creator has the right to declare who you are. Now, this is a common struggle among Christians, is that we fail to remember who we are in Christ Jesus. We fail to remember that we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, that we are a new creation. So we fail to remember our identity. I'm arguing that I am who God declares me to be, that I am forgiven, that I am redeemed, exclamation point, exclamation point. And as a creator, he has the right to do that. So what is the most important thing about you this morning? You see very quickly these studies that we're engaged in in E2E and this exploration that we're doing of the book of Genesis. It's not just a mental exercise full of interesting tidbits. It is stimulating. It's fascinating when you look at creation. But I would argue it's more than that. What you're doing is an act of worship, and it drives us to give the Creator greater honor and greater glory that's due His name. And the side benefit of it is, when I'm reminded of who I am and who I am before Him, I speak into the lives of other people differently. Now, all of that to get to E2E Part 6. Let me just review some basic things with you, basic biblical understanding of some of the things that we've covered. When calling the universe into existence, God called time into existence. He spoke the universe, and that's the moment that time began. And when he created time within the fabric of time, he created a cradle, a womb, if you will. This planet that you and I live in, an earthly cradle in which to nurture mankind. So Scripture says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. And it doesn't say when it was, it just says that it was. So time began with the start of the universe, and whatever is before that moment is eternal. In other words, there was a point when the universe did not exist, Uh, You might have come to that conclusion already, but I can tell you myriads of millions of people missed out on that detail. When evolution came on the scene in the 1850s and the, the theory of evolution came on the scene, people began buying into the thought that the universe is eternal. But I'm here to tell you this morning that in the last 50 years, both evolutionists and creationists agree on one point. 
There is a beginning point to the universe. And probably the only point they actually agree on. There is a point where the universe did not exist. But the Bible declares there has never been a point when God did not exist. God is self-existent, meaning this. He doesn't derive his existence from outside of himself. And he doesn't need fellowship. That isn't why he created. It wasn't because he was lonely. You find that in statements like what he says in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says, what's your name? What should I call you? And his response is, I am that I am. Or this that David wrote in Psalm chapter 90, before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God from eternity to eternity, you're there. And that same God wants you. How awesome is that? That he would speak galaxies into existence. That he's existed before time. And that one wants you. And he wants good for you. Regardless of how you arrived. Therefore, the Godhead, in harmony, working together, created. All three members of the Godhead participated in creation. We know that from statements in the Scriptures like, let us make. Look with me on the screen at this, Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, plural, obviously speaking of more than one. Or Colossians 1.16, kind of putting a nail on the point, for by Him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created. So God the Father, God the Son, and here's the Spirit, verse 2, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. So immediately at the outset of human history, at the beginning of recorded creation, you're faced with an enormous choice. Either I believe that God did or He did not. And I'm suggesting it has huge implications. What you believe about creation and what you believe about God has huge implications. Implications regarding the truthfulness of Scripture, can you believe it? And God's right to declare who you are. Either we evolved out of the primordial soup, or you have a loving God who created you in His image and pursues you and wants you for a relationship with Himself. So you find the argument is not just biological, although many would like to reduce it to that. It's not just biological, it's moral, and above that, it's spiritual. Douglas Kelly is a modern-day theologian, and he writes quite a bit. He has a few books out, and he's written on this particular issue regarding the dignity of humanity. Let me show you uh, an excerpt, two quotes from him, but this first one, he sets the base. There is no doubt that the biblical vision of man as God's creature, whom he made in his own image, has had the most powerful effect on human dignity, on liberty, on the expansion of the rights of the individual, on political systems, on the development of medicine, on every other area of culture. Why make that point? Because as an opposite line of thought, what evolution tries to do is it strains to strip, strip, strip Scripture of its authority by saying that 
you are the result of chance. And if you're the result of chance, it removes your dignity. Here's the second part of Douglas Kelly's quote. How different from the humanistic view of man is merely an evolved creature not made in God's image because there is no God. Such a premise has enabled the Marxist totalitarian states conveniently to liquidate millions of their citizens because of the assumption that there is no transcendent person in whose image those citizens are created, no being to give those citizens a dignity and a right to exist beyond what the state determines. See, if evolution is true, if that's true, I have no ethical right to exist. Stalin believed that. Stalin started out in church, believed the things of church, and somewhere along the way, somebody handed him a copy of The Origin of the Species. And he began reading about Darwinian evolution. And he decided, I'm going to embrace atheism, and became an atheist, and embraced Marxism, and liquidated 20 million people of his home country. You follow the leaders of the world who were the greatest despots, the greatest tyrants, and they track in that same way of thinking. J.W. Burrow wrote the introduction to The Origin of the Species in 1966 when it was rewritten. Origin of the Species was produced in 1858. Darwin held on to it for a very long time, about 18 years. He wasn't ready to publish it. He wasn't even convinced of his own thoughts. But his friends saw it, and they convinced him, and it went, obviously, viral, as they would say. People started buying it left and right. It was reprinted many times, but in 1966, a definitive version was reprinted, and J.W. Burrow wrote the introduction to the origin of the species, and he captures pretty well the frame of thinking that's representative of the origin of the species. He wrote this. According to Darwin, we are the product of blind chance and a blind struggle, and a man, lonely, intelligent mutation, scrambling with the roots for his sustenance. It was as if an umbilical cord had been cut and men found themselves part of a cold, passionless universe. He is a lonely, intelligent mutation produced out of chance. Is that you? Does that represent the way that you think, the way that you view yourself? Because according to evolution, we are merely intelligent goo waiting to become manure. That's the way it's approached. Because random chance is the result of your existence. It's the source of all beginning. See, if you remove the God of Genesis, you are left with random chance. Yet there has to be a first cause. There has to be something that triggered all this. And you can't let God be the first cause. Something has to be the first cause, so the cause is random chance. But you and I know that chance is not a force. Chance doesn't do anything. It can't create anything. It can't make anything happen. But that's what you're left with. If God is not sovereign over all, and I don't mean just over all of creation, but over everything, if he's not the first cause, then he's not God. And if there's no God, chance rules. These things should trouble you. If you've bought into evolutionary theory, these things should really haunt you. I mentioned earlier that even Darwin had a hard time with Darwin. He wrestled and he wrestled with these things. He wasn't convinced of them. And he held them for 18 years, as I said earlier. 
But his friends pushed him and pushed him and they pressured him and as they read it, they thought, you've got to get this out there. Let me show you a capture of Darwin's thoughts. I'm guessing most people here haven't read The Origin of the Species, but this goes to chapter 6 of The Origin of the Species. Long before having arrived at this part of my work, a crowd of difficulties will have occurred to the reader. Some of them are so grave that to this day I can never reflect on them without being staggered. Such simple instincts as bees making a beehive could be sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. And to suppose that the eye, with all its imitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of the spherical and chromatic aberration, could evolve by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. I'm guessing that your ninth grade biology teacher didn't read you that quote. I'm guessing most college classes don't share that quote. Now, among Christians, something else has appeared on the scene. Trying to play nicely with Darwinian evolution, there's something that's crept on the scene called theistic evolution. And some Christians hold to theistic evolution. Let me just explain to you briefly what it is. Theistic evolution would say that God launched it all, but he allowed evolution to take over. And as a subset to theistic evolution is the thought of progressive evolution. You may have read an article in the news in the last three weeks. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, but it was captured and reprinted many times uh, from a, a creation doctor who would be a creation theistic evolutionist. He would say that um, this is what God did. And he, he's in Missouri. And he said, I believe that what we're seeing is that God implanted himself along the way that progressively he created throughout the course of evolution, and he did some creative work alongside of evolution. Here's my struggle with that. Those views deny the text of Genesis as being accurate. It's a bald-faced attempt to accommodate and play nicely alongside Darwinian evolution. And the implications of rejecting the straightforward account of Genesis are profound Here's my serious issue with theistic evolution. If man comes on the scene at the end of the evolutionary process, the, the problem is evolution is a process of death. It produces the deterioration of inferior species. It, it's actually called the survival of the fittest. You've heard that phrase. So it's a process of decline and disease as the survivor rises and conquers and finds himself getting higher and higher until it gets to mankind. So here's the serious problem with evolution. It's in total conflict with the Bible. How can you have death before the fall? The fall of mankind and the fall of this planet doesn't come until Genesis chapter 3. So if there's death in the billions and billions of years of evolution, then what in the world did sin do that hadn't already been done? God says sin entered this world by one man, and by one man it spread to the entire planet. We'll get into that in just a minute. That's Romans chapter 5. What do you do when you come into a situation like this where culture's saying this and you're reading this, and how do you balance the two? Paul anticipated this. I know it was the Spirit of God moving in Paul's heart. And Paul wrote to Timothy about this creeping into the church. And he wrote this. Look with me on the screen at 2 Timothy 4.3. Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. I would put evolution in the category of myth, and I'm trying to deconstruct it for you in the weeks that we're working through this so you see the biblical perspective. God's writing through Paul and saying, it's because of these myths. I have to clarify for you where you came from. It says John 1.3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Thank you for clarifying that, Father. You're here because he made you. What's the most important thing about you? How you see yourself in relation to God and how God sees you. So what is the heart of God when he's instructing Moses to write Genesis? What does he want you to know about himself? I think Isaiah captured it really well. Look with me at this. Isaiah wrote it this way, Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. See, the record of your origination, your origins, where you came from, does not serve to validate God. What Genesis is, Genesis is his expressed desire to communicate to everyone and preserve our perspective of who we are so that we would know who we are, so that we would have a sense of ourselves. Genesis is a declaration, I belong to God. That's the way you should read Genesis. So the writer of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 11 verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It's almost as though the writer of Hebrews understood what you would be facing in 2022, looking forward in time saying, don't stress over this. It's an issue of faith. What was made was not made out of things that were seen. Trust God on this. In knowing these things, we gain our sense of worth and we gain our sense of purpose foremost that God has the right to declare who I am and what I am. I want you to see an excerpt from the study guide that you're going to be either holding in your hands at some point this week or maybe you have it in your hand right now. This will come up if you're in small groups in your small group conversation. It's a quote right from that. Pastor Rich captured this thought really, really well. He said this, As God's image bearers, there's no need to have an identity crisis. Amen. Well done, Rich. It's right on point. Feelings of insignificance or superiority melt away in the light of God's image. Earthly achievements and human accomplishments do not determine the worth of ourselves and others. Our value and worth is based on the glorious privilege God gave us as earthly ambassadors of His image. Okay, we dabbled in philosophy, and now we're going to shift over to theology. This is going to feel a bit disjointed, but just stay with me on this, and you're going to see how this all fits together. We've been talking over these weeks about the massiveness of this universe, and that it is the product of a creator with infinite intelligence and infinite power. And last week, I asked this question, what what does that make you feel like? Like a bug? 
like insignificant when you see the massiveness, even, even just our galaxy. We didn't even get outside the Milky Way galaxy. I can feel so insignificant. How can I know anything about God? Now, the truth is, as I said last week, and I'll say it again today, only if He chooses to reveal Himself, you and I are of the natural order. We're locked in space and time, and the natural cannot comprehend the supernatural. We can know some things about Him through the natural revelation, and He reveals it in the nighttime sky and in little bugs. But to really know Him, we need special revelation. Natural revelation is what He reveals in nature. Special revelation is what He reveals in His own Word, in the Word of God. One of the things, the details that He chooses to reveal is that you and I are not the only intelligent beings that He created. He created a higher order. Somewhere in ages past, and we're not told when, before we walked this planet, God created an unknown number of angels. And they were there at the very beginning. We know the timetable because we're told that they shouted for joy when God called the universe into existence. So they're created before that moment. One of the angels in particular is called Lucifer. He's a cherubim. And he's created of the highest order. He actually has the name in Hebrew of bright star or the bright star of the morning. And of all the heavenly beings that were created, we're told the bright star of the morning is the most beautiful. The Bible presents him as the showroom model. He's perfect in every way. That particular one, at some point, God anointed as the chief cherub over all of the other angels, and He elevated Him. Look with me at Ezekiel 28, 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Notice that's all past tense. So He's created perfect. His actions are perfect. His being is perfect. Therefore, the fall of that one... The rebellion of that one could not lay with God because God made him absolutely perfect. He was not created evil. He chose evil. So he had the power of contrary choice. You and I don't have that. You were born into sin, Scripture says. As a human, sin spread to the entire planet. But that wasn't the case with this one. He chose sin. And so we see this really remarkable statement that Jesus made. We touched on briefly last week. It comes from the book of Luke, and He records this for us, Luke 10, 18. And He, Jesus, said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I'm not sure that we really appreciate or understand the magnitude of that statement. First, ask yourself this question, fell to Where? Fell from where? We know heaven. Fell to where? And do you notice his name has already been changed because judgment has already been taking place? When did Satan fall? Dive into theology a little bit with you. I lean into a time before Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and I'm going to show you why. I promised you last week we were going to dig into this a little bit. Go with me on that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Somewhere, 
before the shaping, before the calling forth of the created order on this planet, there's a rebellion in heaven. We covered this a bit in week four pretty well, actually, the rebellion of Satan, so I'm not going to go back into that. But I want to show you why I think it sets a tone for not just the book of Genesis, but for everything we're going to do through E2E. Go back with me to verse 2 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was, and in Hebrew it actually is the word became, formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I want to show you three Hebrew words that are in your notes this morning, or you can download them later, but these three come directly out of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. The first word is tohu. And it represents the word formless or without form. Tohu is a waste place, a worthless thing where there's just utter confusion. Here's the second one. Bohu, that's the word void. To be empty, a vacuity, an undistinguishable ruin. Doesn't sound like any place I'd want to be. And then this third word, hoshek. The earth was without form and void and darkness. That's the word hoshek there. And figuratively, it means misery and destruction and death and wickedness. And we're told out of that, God called forth life. And we hear Jesus say, I was there, I saw it. Satan fell from heaven like lightning. And you want to say, to where? Where did he fall to? And it's logically answered when you begin examining the book of Genesis and you see Satan showing up in the garden in the very place that God said, it's not just good, it's very good. How did he get there? So go back to Jesus' statement. I was watching. Satan fell from heaven like lightning, meaning Jesus was there. He was there in the time before time validating his existence before he was on this earth, but also verifying there is a real Satan, and he really fell. And it doesn't say Lucifer fell. It says Satan fell because there's been a change of name because God always changes the name to match the character. Abram becomes Abraham. Jesus changes the name of Peter because he has the right to do that. God has chosen a new name for you. Did you know that? When you get into eternity one day, there's a name that's been chosen for you by God himself that he's going to give to you, a name that perfectly matches your identity because God knows who we really are. All these things are laying the background to realize that sin is actually older than the garden. It didn't originate in the garden on earth. It originated with Lucifer. That's why Jesus calls him the father of lies. He says, I was watching him fall from heaven like lightning. So you need to ask the question, where was he condemned to? If he's been judged, his name's been changed, he's been condemned to where? And I would say to you, theologically, this planet, there's a reason he's called the prince in the power of the air, the, the, the God of this world, Scripture says. See, when you open up your Bible and you go to the book of Genesis, the rebellion has already occurred And you find Satan moving in to target God's highest created order on this planet, mankind. 
Dr. Erwin Lutzer captures it really well if you haven't read his book before, Serpent of Paradise. This is out of his book. He says it this way. In a realm beyond our grasp, a glorious creature chose to take a cosmic gamble that would backfire. And he tripped a series of dominoes and the action of it reverberates throughout all humanity and even right in this very moment, you and I feel the effects, the painful effects of that decision. And in turn... Adam and Eve, when they bought into the temptation, they could not possibly know that their sin would take down the whole entire human race. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What enormous implications. But... It's their sin that brought the wonder of God's salvation. So Paul follows it up very quickly in Romans 5 with verse 15. If by the transgression of the one many died, much more, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Are you the many this morning? We're the many if you've received Jesus Christ. The grace of God abounded to you much more, Paul argues. It's even greater than that sin. And it goes on to say that in Adam all died, but so in Adam as all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's the heartbreaking thing, church. We just covered the basics of theology. I mean, this is just rudimentary stuff. But the truth is, Many people can't understand what you just processed. Many people can't see it because of this reason. Satan works overtime to keep people in darkness. Second Corinthians says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God telling us that the heavy darkness, the thickness of this black sin is so thick that the world is completely blind to its own creator, its own maker. You know what that requires then? It absolutely demands the work of God's Spirit because we can't see it on our own. If you know these things and you know these things to be true, it's because the Holy Spirit brought light and illumination to your life. That's the grace of God working in your life. Praise God for that. Scripture says this, Colossians 1, 3, 13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. You just want to send up a silent praise God right now, don't you? Just like, God, thank you for that truth. Well, praise God if you do see these things, and if they do make sense to you, it is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So let me put a bow tie on this and wrap it up for you, because this sets up where we're going next week with the actual arrival, the biological creation of the things that we know, the created order. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. It's the question that haunts every single one of us every single day, either consciously or subconsciously, because it affects every single thing that we do. Who am I in relation to him? 
Because what you believe about God determines what you do with your money, the websites that you go to, the social relationships that you get involved in. What you believe about God determines what you do next. As creator, he has the right to speak the universe into existence. Therefore, he has the right to declare who you are. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Has God declared that about you? He absolutely has if you are in Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. I'm not sure that I can hear that often enough. I'm not sure that you can hear that often enough because of this. We are constantly tripping up and forgetting who we are because we stumble and we trip along the way and we find ourselves not doing the things that we want to do when we do the things that we don't want to do. And even in the midst of our struggle, we're pressing on to the high calling in Christ Jesus. As we trip and as we stumble, God says to you, I can declare you new, even though you feel dirty, even though you've committed sin, because my grace is greater than all your sin, much more than my grace abound to you. And you've already declared that you are the many. So this week, you take on this week, remember who you are in Christ Jesus, because I contend that the creator of all, he continually wants good for you. And to prove that to you, he willingly surrendered his massive throne of glory because of his undeniable, unimaginable love for you. Praise God for that. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that truth, church. I hope you can remember that tomorrow. I hope you can remember that Friday evening. Only God knows what you're going to be doing. But when you find yourself looking back over the course of the week that's ahead of you and you see where you tripped, remember he wants good for you continually, so he died for you. Let's pray. Father, do not let us forget this truth of who we are in you. As majestic as those galaxies are and as fascinating as the bombardier beetle is, God, all these things that intrigue us, they're nothing in comparison to who you are. And that you want a relationship with us. Praise you, Father. We just want to say amen. Thank you. Praise you. Glorify you. Because there is no one like you. It's a privilege to sing holy, holy, holy to you. Because you are precious to us and we recognize the majesty of who you declare that you are. But also who you declare us to be. The redeemed. And we're only redeemed because of what Jesus did. So we praise you in his majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a fantastic week, New Hope.